Thank you, Megan, and uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany as we begin a new series in Psalm 23. This morning, we're looking at the, the first half of the first verse, and we'll be actually going through the whole psalm between now and Easter with an encouragement to you to every week meditate on the scripture uh, that is that week's consideration and build. So this week, 1A, next week, all of one, in your meditation, subsequent week one and two, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll be doing that uh, together, but as we begin this morning, I wanna show you a picture taken at the end of sabbatical. This is my wife, Donna, with a little lamb in her arms. It's one of my favorite pictures of Donna for a number of reasons, uh, the, not the least of which is her love of the outdoors uh, certainly shines through this picture. And uh, it's taken because we have friends who live in the high Alps who have sheep. And the sheep are released every spring. And then there's a traditional Austrian kind of festival that happens every September where the shepherds ascend way up into the mountains and they call the sheep. They literally call and the sheep come to them. And then they, they lead them down into the pen and then they take them back to the, to the farms before... The, the snow arises, and so Donna was privileged to go out uh, and gather the sheep. I, like, I was invited, but it started at 5.30 in the morning, and I didn't want to go. <laughs> so I didn't go, but Donna went, and uh, it entailed like a 3,000-foot hike up to the high Alps, and then really miraculous to watch these shepherds and shepherdesses call, and the, all the sheep come, and there's some more sheep stories along the way, but the picture, which is no longer there, uh, <laughs> captures, I think, this also this sense of intimacy that you see between a shepherd or a shepherdess and sheep. There's this, there's this hugging, there's this hugging that goes on, <clears throat> and, and this sense on the part of the sheep, very apparent uh, for those who have experienced this, that the, the sheep are nurtured. There's an emotion of feeling safe and nurtured by the shepherd. And this is much of what we want to cover in our time together. And it's very poignant this morning, actually. Uh, there was a school shooting this week. Many people are angry. Uh, we may or may not gain new gun legislation. Uh, there was Russian interference in our elections. We may or may not gain sanctions or security, that that will never happen again. You may or may not get the medical report that you want, the job you want, the reconciliation of your parents that you, that you long for. But what you can know with absolute certitude is this. Uh, there's a shepherd who wants to walk with you every step of the way. Wherever you are, whatever you face, wherever we are, whatever we face, there's a shepherd who wants to to go with us. And that's what we'll be looking at in our time together, both this morning and the subsequent weeks. It's important this morning that I set the context for you. <clears throat> Most of you know this, but some don't. The author of Psalm 23 is David. And David was a great king, but also was from the beginning an unlikely selection to be the king. Saul had lost his reign, and Samuel the prophet was charged with going to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, and there's a couple of important observations when you think about how David ascended to the throne. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 5, 
we read that Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to a sacrifice. And then uh, Jesse, the father, has, he actually has seven sons, but he only brings six of them to the, uh, to the festival for consecration. And uh, each one shows up before Samuel, and Samuel says, uh, seven times actually, says, the, uh, the Lord has not chosen this one. Seven times. And then uh, Samuel says, are these all your children? And uh, Jesse says, no, there's one more, but I didn't invite him. His name's David, and he's the youngest. Youngest don't become kings. And he's a shepherd. There's no political experience. Shepherds don't become kings. Samuel says, go get him. Jesse hadn't even thought of him as a possibility. Uh, he gets him, brings him. God speaks to Samuel, this is the one. Anoint this one. It's a really amazing story, actually. <clears throat> because outwardly, he's unqual completely unqualified. And just before we even begin in the text this morning, I wonder what God has anointed you to do that you're not doing because you have self-selected out, you don't feel qualified. I wonder if there's anything in your life. Some of us uh, have this, we have a paradigm of ourselves. Oh no, I'm not an activist. Oh no, I'm not a good parent. Oh no, I'm not a good husband. Oh no, I'm not a manager. Oh no, I'm not a leader. Oh no, I'm not an artist. Oh no, I don't, I'm not good with old people. And we, and we kind of withdraw from God's story preemptively in the name of self-knowledge, but it's not really self-knowledge, it's self-ignorance, because Psalm 139 says that God knows us better than we know ourselves, God made us, and that all of us have latent kind of hidden gifts that will come to the surface. David had hidden gifts, and those gifts became very apparent over time, but only as God saw into David's soul and said, what you even, David, do not see, what Jesse doesn't see, what no one sees, I want to fan into flame. So there's something in all of our lives often that kind of resides there latently <clears throat> and we're not in God's story because we don't feel qualified. Second application, even before we get into the text, is this. Because David was chosen as a king with a wealth of literature which, if we allow it to speak to us, can reshape the way that we look at the world. And what I mean by that is David wrote uh, most of the Psalms and he, he wrote them at a time in history when people connected with God differently than we connect with God now. We connect, God, we connect with God now often through our text, through reading, through, and I know some of you do this, through filling in the blanks. There's an outline in the bulletin. And, and so we have a feeling that we've connected with God because we've engaged intellectually with God. That's fine. But there was this period in history up until about 800 P BC when people connected with God in an entirely different way. They connected with God through poetry, through dance, through oral tradition, through telling stories around, uh, uh, around a campfire, through music, through fertility, through nature, through seasons. Very violent world, world strongly focused on survival. Much evidence, though, that in that period of history, when people related with God through nature and text rather than just nature, uh, the psyches of people were healthier than we have today. And there are many reasons for this, but one of the reasons is this. Uh, 
God's intention for all of us in the room, we know this from the Bible, is that we be shaped not only by revelation from the text, but by revelation from creation. In other words, they felt uh, that they inherently belonged in, in the web of this physical world because they, they participated actively in the cycles of the moon, the seasons, planting, harvesting, long days, short days, and we live in a hyper-insulated world where, you know, the big challenge of the day is moving from the parking lot into this climate-controlled room here, and, and so most of us in the room don't know the cycle of the moon. We don't know where the moon is in the seasons right now. We, all we know is it's sunny or not, or cold or hot, but we're not, we're not encountering creation at all in the same way, right? And, and because of this, uh, we miss a great deal, and this is the result of first industrialization, and second now, particularly in the 21st century, mass urban migration. People are moving away from rural areas into cities. Great opportunity for evangelism, but not the point this morning, right? The point this morning is for us to understand that uh, God chose a rustic shepherd to become king, and because of that, we have Psalms saturated with this very strong creation theology. Revelation of God's character is revealed in creation. And that revelation is better received, best received by people who are themselves paying attention to creation. And so I want you to see here at the outset, because we'll look at shepherding as a big theme here for a few weeks, that creation is not for us kind of this store from which we are invited to harvest animal, vegetable, mineral for our own prosperity. Creation is not a kind of the set of props on the stage for the play that is the human drama. Creation is itself a source of revelation, right? Psalm 19, Psalm 104, Romans 1, Romans 10, the entire end of the book of Job, the parables of Jesus, over and over again, we, re we recognize that God's character is revealed through creation. Truths about uh, the ways of God are revealed through creation, and therefore all of us would do well during Lent at some point to get out, to get outside uh, and encounter wind, rain, snow, blossoms, uh, in, be in your garden, clouds, sunlight. Yesterday for me was kind of this amazing day of uh, leaving in the morning from the mountains where I live with massive heavy snowstorm and wind and avalanches, just all like really active creation and coming down the mountain and then getting out of the car here and it's 52 degrees and sunny and it, the sun just felt so um, benevolent, if I can use that word, right? Like what a gift. I think I appreciate it maybe more than any of you because of where I'd come from. And so I spent the afternoon reading outside, like I'm sitting in a chair with my sunglasses on and, I, and, my, and my wife was uh, leading snowshoe trips. And so I took a selfie of myself with sun and texted her and said, ha ha, there I am, you know, and I'm enjoying the sunshine. It was like, just this, what a wealth of creations all around us, do you see? And so the point here would be, uh, David becomes a shepherd king and he's speaking now the language of creation throughout this psalm and we would do well to pay attention. You don't have to go, you don't have to climb Mount Rainier. You don't, you don't have to, you know, ride your bike 100 miles. You can simply, you know, work in your garden. But pay attention to creation. This is what God is saying to us. We're invited to read from two books. So David becomes a shepherd king 
And the most famous of all the Psalms is this one. It's read at funerals. It's, it's, it's memorized by children. One doctor that I know of prescribes this for people struggling with anxiety, that they memorize this and repeat it every morning. And so uh, I wrote in the bulletin, three nouns lay the foundation for Psalm 23. However, I woke up this morning with a great deal of anxiety realizing that my is not a noun. And so uh, there are two nouns and a determiner that lay the foundation for a life of confidence, peace, joy, and rest. Two nouns and a determiner. Yahweh, a noun, right? Shepherd, a noun, and my, the determiner. And so we want to look at those three things. Beginning with this, uh, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. And so the, the, the word Lord here, when you read in your Bible, Lord, and it's in all caps, that is uh, the Hebrew name for God called Yahweh. And you would spell that in English, Y-H-W-H. And there's a great deal to speak of when we speak of Yahweh. I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview here so that you understand. Yahweh frames God's character for us. And the result of that should be for all of us in the room, confidence. Yahweh frames God's character for us. The result should be confidence. Now, there are two main names for God in the Bible. <clears throat> Elohim, powerful God, and uh, Yahweh, personal God. I want to look at both of those briefly. What's interesting is Eastern religion speaks of the gods as powerful but not personal. Often in Greek mythology, what we learned was that gods were personal but not powerful. And what you, when you come to Christianity, you come to uh, this Elohim-Yahweh connection, one God who is both what? Infinitely powerful and infinitely personal. And that for me is one of the main reasons that I believe. Because the, the, the notion that uh, God is personal but not powerful means I have a companion who's, uh, who's impotent to do anything for me. The notion that God is, is powerful but not personal means that God can move the world but he doesn't care about me. And so when we come to the 23rd Psalm, we find here, and particularly in the word Yahweh, this intersection. Not only is God Elohim, but God is Yahweh. So powerful and personal. Elohim shows up, for example, in Genesis chapter one. God said, let there be light and what? Boom, you know, light. And then God flings the stars into space and, and creates the days and the seas and the animals and the vegetation and, and all of that. You see all through chapter one of Genesis, yeah, the name God is Elohim in every case doesn't show up as Lord until chapter 2 of Genesis, where you see a second creation account. And so in Psalm 2, uh, it's not Elohim that's used, but it's Lord, right? Yahweh. And Yahweh literally means life, but actually means much more than that, right? Yahweh is, where, uh, is the name given to God during the kind of the detailed creation account of humans. And so when God creates humans, uh, this character Yahweh comes through because there's a unique word uh, uh, for the creation of humans. And the word used to create humans is the same word uh, used when an artist 
would fashion a lump of clay. And so you have um, in Elohim creating everything else, you have the power of God, but when God is creating humanity, you have the personality of God, God carefully crafting each one of us, and that comes through in Psalm 139, where we say uh, that God has formed our own inward parts, that same word formed. God has created us as an art, as a work of art. We're a work of art in God's, in God's mind, you see. And so, so uh, Yahweh means life, but uh, uh, chapter two emphasizes Yahweh as personal. And, and then it's Yahweh that God, uh, uh, it's, it's in the form of Yahweh that God uh, seeks Adam and Eve after their rebellion and fall. In other words, uh, when, you know, when Adam sins, he runs, and it's the Lord seeking. And then it's the Lord who, once he's extracted a confession from Adam and Eve, it's, it's Yahweh who immediately makes a way for the restoration of humanity. In other words, embedded in the kind of the curse found in Genesis chapter three is, is this word from God to Satan, remember? What does it say? It says, look, uh, you will bruise him on the heel, but he, he, the redeemer, will what? Crush you on the head. In other words, the, uh, the curse that is now upon the earth, brought on by sin, the curse will be broken by a redeemer. God's absolute commitment to do that shows up because of Yahweh, Jehovah. So we, 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 we see this name, Yahweh, and what we begin to see here is Yahweh is for us then the covenant-making, promise-keeping God. That's the character of Yahweh. Covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, is where Moses has returned to Egypt in obedience to God to confront oppressors, Israel's enslaved. He speaks to the leader of Egypt, and as happened in Selma in the south in the 60s when MLK spoke, uh, speaking to power doesn't always make things easier. Things don't get easier, things get worse. Moses then is despondent because Israel's mad at him for even having spoken to Pharaoh, and he goes to God, he says to God, God, why did you even send me here, right? And then, and then this is God's response. I am Yahweh. That's his response. And then this is what he says in Exodus chapter six. And you, it's so beautiful to read this. He says over and over again, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will redeem you. I will bring these people out. I will, I will guide them. I will provide for them. Why? I am Yahweh. That's it. In other words, I made a promise that I'd redeem Israel. They're enslaved. I will set them free. You can count on it. Why? My character. In other words, what you see here is God as initiator, and God is the one who's committed, completely committed to our ongoing transformation, our deliverance. It's all there. God is for us. God will be with us. God is infinitely committed to our transformation, our deliverance, our freedom. When we doubt, he's our encouragement. When we're weak, he's our strength. When we mourn, he's our comfort. When we're afraid, he's our courage. And most significant of all, and this is huge, when we fail, God is our forgiveness. And when we run, God is our pursuer. So that we see through the name Yahweh, God, God says this, I am a promise-keeping God. And if I make a promise to you, says the Lord, if I make a promise to you, I will keep the promise. You can take it to the bank right? Uh, so I go all back to Genesis 14, the first covenant that God made, God makes with Abraham. And when God makes a covenant with Abraham, in contrast 
to common covenants where both parties walk between the pieces of the dead animals because it's a covenant of equality. In that case, Genesis 14, this is what it says. The Lord walked between the pieces. Only God. And it's God's way of saying, look, Abraham, even if you do nothing, this will happen. Why? Because listen, Abraham, it's not about you. Not about your obedience, your discipline, your prayer life, your righteousness, nothing. This is entirely about what? My faithfulness to you, I will do it. That's what God says. This is huge, at least for me. Because this shows up over and over again in the Bible. God walking between the pieces, Genesis 14. Jacob, Genesis 28, has lied, cheated, stolen, is on the run, is terrified. God shows up to Jacob in a, in a, in a dream in Genesis 28. And again, what does he say? I am Yahweh. That's what he says. And then he says, I will deliver you. I will see you through. I will bring you back to this land. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will make you a great nation. Why? Not because of your obedience, you were disobedient. Not because of your honesty, you're a liar. Not because, not because you're so upright, you're a thief. <laughs> but in spite of that, you're a liar, a thief, disobedient, fearful, anxious, on the run. In spite of all of that, I will do it. That's Yahweh. So when David here says the Lord, it's a lot wrapped up in that. And it goes on and on all through the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37, can these bones live? And you see all these dead bones and a, and a vision given to Ezekiel. And, and Ezekiel says, oh Lord, Yahweh, you know if these bones can live. And the bones live. God can take the most desperate circumstance and bring life because of the character of God as Yahweh. So I, I, just by way of application, it's hugely significant. I'd say for most of us in the room, uh, we need to frame our lives in such a way that we have a confidence that God is approachable. Does that make sense? I frame my life in such a way that I, can, that I believe on an ongoing basis that God is approachable. And I would say that the reason that I'm still doing what I'm doing after, after many, many years of doing it is exactly because of this, because of my view of, of God as Yahweh or God as Lord. Because I believe that God is kind of relentlessly, infinitely, unconditionally for me. And not just for me, but more than for me, God is unconditionally, relentlessly, infinitely committed to my ongoing transformation. So, so, so God, is, God is approachable in, in my mind, right? Uh, and, and my confidence is rooted in God's character as the faithful one, the promise keeper. God met Peter after he denied Christ as a means of reminding us over and over again, look, with Abraham, it wasn't about Abraham. With Jacob, it wasn't about Jacob. With Israel, it wasn't about Israel. Peter, with you, what? It's not about you. I will still use you in spite of your denial. Why? Because I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord. Uh, how many uh, have had this experience in the room where, uh, as a parent, your child gets injured or something like that, and then they run to one, one parent and not the other consistently? Has that 
Does that ever happen to any of you in the room? One parent is a consistent one. Who's the one? They ran to you. They ran, so in this case, they run to, in, in my case, they would always run to my wife, Donna. They always, they would never run to me because if they came to me, they would get a lecture <laughs> as to why this injury uh, was brought about by their own uh, poor choices, right? And so uh, I'll never, ever forget, you know, we had uh, uh, candidated here at, at Bethany and we were then, you know, waiting well, there's a congregational meeting of some sort. We were at a, um, a nearby motel. And I always have this thing about kids. I don't know why. I mean, our kids, we, you know, we would camp in the snow, climb on rock faces, rappel off of cliffs. But I, the thing that made me most nervous was my kids running on pavement. I was just terrified that if the kids were running on pavement, they were going to fall and break a tooth or break an elbow or something like that. And so I was always, you know, my kids, I'd let them do anything, but don't run on the pavement ever. And I, you know, I was, don't run on the pavement. And so then, you know, uh, we're supposed to drive back here to Bethany because, you know, there's been a, vo- a congregational vote. And so we're supposed to drive back here. And we get, you know, we come out of the, we're going down the stairs at this motel. And then my, my oldest daughter and my son, they go, let's race to the car. And I go, don't run on the pavement. And they, they do. They're running on the pavement. They blow me off. And my son falls and breaks his elbow. He breaks his elbow. And so I'm the first one on the scene. He didn't have time to run to anybody. I'm, and I'm like, I told you never run on the pavement. And then my, you know, Donna comes and she just wraps him up, and then we end up in the emergency room. And I'll, I mean, it's the, the picture's sealed in my, kind of in my mind here. Like, I became, I think for a season anyway, with my son, unapproachable. Does that make sense? It was like, this. And I wanna, I'm just going to suggest to you that as evangelicals, we're guilty of creating this God far too often. Here's God. Don't run on the pavement. I told you. No, no. God is, look, go all the way back. The Lord heard that uh, the, Adam had run, he'd run away. And the Lord went after him. For nurture, do you see? For nurture. And so this, is, this first principle, hugely important, because um, do we run and hide from God? out of fear for the voice of condemnation that we will hear, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or do we run toward God? It's a very important principle. Second, uh, God is Lord. Second, God is shepherd. And this, this word shepherd frames our need for God and should result in humility and dependency. So, Uh, The notion of God as Yahweh results in confidence. The notion of shepherd results in humility and dependency. Good shepherds are relentlessly committed to the well-being of their flock. And uh, this means that a shepherd has to be vigilant in watching over every single sheep. There's a reason for that, because domestic sheep are uh, very, very vulnerable to all kinds of things going wrong. Uh, some of you know the name John Muir in the, in the room. He's you know, one of my f- heroes, a great hiker and that kind of thing. He hated 
domestic sheep. Just absolutely hated domestic sheep. He called domestic sheep, I've, I've read uh, some of his works, this beautiful hike he does in the Yosemite. He calls domestic sheep uh, hooved locusts because he just hated the way that they just would go in and they just strip the land of, of everything. And a part of the reason he hated them was because their natural instincts had been domesticated out of them. In other words, what, like what Muir was always attracted to was the wild, right? And the domesticated sheep, like they were, they're not stupid, but they're vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable. One woman, a shepherdess, she muses on how amazing, this is what she writes. She says, I'm still amazed at the variety of ways sheep can find to die. <laughs> she said, this is a Welsh um, uh, shepherdess. She goes, even the hardy Welsh mountain breed with which I was brought up are susceptible to, and then this is the list, Braxy, pulpy kidney, uh, kidney, staggers, pneumonia, pastorella, twin lamb disease, cancer, hypothermia in the winter, maggots in the summer, scab, scrappy, foxes, crows, dogs. They push their heads through fences and get stuck and choke to death. They climb trees to picket foliage and get hung up by their horns or legs. They fall down banks. They get bitten by snakes. They get stung by wasps. They tumble into ponds and streams. They gorge themselves on fallen ash leaves and they, they die from eating too much. They roll on their backs and blow up like balloons. They poison themselves on ragwort. Ram's horns regularly grow into their own heads. They starve, freeze, get depressed, fall ill. Many ways to die, she says, but a good shepherd counters every affliction. That's a beautiful picture. And so the, the notion here is that the shepherd is, is mindful of every member of the flock and the well-being of every member of the flock and caring for every member of the flock. And what happens that's so beautiful is to the extent that the shepherd cares for the sheep, then the sheep respond to literally the voice of that particular shepherd. And this is, uh, it's amazing to see this happen. And I've seen this happen in Austria uh, when I was climbing one day and a guy was coming down the mountainside with his flock of sheep. I uh, wanted to get near the sheep and see them, and so I'd finished my climb, and I'd rappelled off this wall, and the sheep are nearby, and so I walked toward the sheep, and I said, hey, sheep, just like that, and they were terrified. They scattered, and then be coming behind them was the shepherd, and he just said one word, and they all came running to him, and then he went to the front of the flock and walked right past me, and I I just feel like the sheep were all just looking at me, kind of grinning like, ha ha, we're safe now, you know, we're okay. Because they would, go, wherever the shepherd went, they would go anywhere. It's so funny to me, these sheep were terrified of my single voice, but then I followed from a distance to see where the shepherd was taking these sheep. And he took them down the hill, uh, through the parking lot of the ski area, and across a pedestrian mall. And so you can imagine, all, here's all these restaurants and people are out you know, eating and here's a flock of sheep walking straight down a pedestrian mall without any fear. Why? Because they are with the shepherd. And so this shepherd uh, will give us a sense of confidence but only if we behave as what? Sheep, do you see? And so it becomes significant for us then uh, to understand our own vulnerability because what sheep seem to have going for them is their awareness of their vulnerability 
causes them to stay close to the, ch- to the shepherd. And our challenge is to self-identify as sheep. Because to self-identify as a sheep is a way of saying I'm vulnerable, I'm weak, I'm prone to bad decisions, I fail, I stumble in many ways, as it says in James chapter 3, verse 2, and I'm not sure I like to call myself vulnerable, weak, prone to bad decisions. So this shepherding is applied to us as vulnerable humans. Psalm 103 is where the psalmist says in verse 14, he says, hey, we're mindful that we're just dust. I mean, God is mindful that we're dust. And so God then is patient with us. He has this act of compassion towards us because he knows that we're vulnerable, knows that we're weak, knows that we, as, as the hymn says, we're prone to wonder. God steps in because of vulnerability. The very worst thing we can do is say, hey, I'm fine, I'm fine. I've got my education, I'm fine. I run marathons, I'm fine. I make six figures, I'm fine. I live in a beautiful house, I'm fine. No, listen, at every point, the people who know the voice of the shepherd know the voice of the shepherd because they're listening. And they're listening for the voice of the shepherd because they need something that the shepherd has to offer. Does that make sense? And so all of us in the room, no matter how well healed we appear, all of us have, there's something in our lives, if we face it, that will make us aware of our need for the shepherd. It's a decision you need to make. It's a failure that you've had. It's a setback. It's pain. It's loss. It's fear. It's anxiety. It's loneliness. It's grief. Something's not working. And as soon as I acknowledge something's not working, as soon as I acknowledge I'm confused, as soon as I acknowledge my brokenness, it's right there in my brokenness, that's the point at which the shepherd becomes real for me. Remember that Ecclesiastes 3 passage? Hey, there's a time to laugh and a time to cry and a time for joy and a time for sorrow and a time to gather and a time to scatter. Like half that list is, is, is a cry for help. Like when it's, when it's loss, it's a cry for help. When it's grief, it's a, time, it's a, it's a cry for help. When it's death, it's a, it's a cry for help. When it's war, it's a time for, for help. Self-sufficiency is a lie. The notion that you just need to tap in to your own divinity is a lie. You got this is a lie. Annie Lamott says it this way. My belief is that when you're telling the truth, you're close to God. If you say to God, I'm exhausted, I'm depressed beyond words. I don't even like you right now, God. And I recoil from uh, most people who believe in you. Well, if that's honest, then that might be the most honest thing you've ever said. And that's a good thing. If you told me you said to God, it's all hopeless and I don't have a clue if you exist, but I could use a hand, it would bring tears to my eyes because that's honest. And honesty is what God delights in. When sheep are afraid, they run to the shepherd. So, so uh, prayer is sometimes our real self trying to communicate with the, the real, the truth, the light. And, and the best way we do that is by admitting our vulnerability. So, so the fact that Yahweh is a good shepherd is really only meaningful to me if I then self-identify as a what? As a sheep. And that means vulnerability. And then finally, the determiner, not the noun, my, frames the mystery that the infinite is also personal. It's amazing. Uh, you know the story, many of you, in Luke chapter 15. I'll just reference it for now. Jesus tells a parable. 
There were 100 sheep, 99 came home, one was lost. And the parable says what? The shepherd went out after the one. This is, this is not good economics, right? Like 1% loss, that's okay. No, it's not okay. The shepherd goes after the one. Donna came home from her shepherd experience and said, uh, she said, Richard, this is exactly what happened. Exactly. They, they got back all the sheep in the pen. They counted the sheep. And there was one missing. There was one missing. And so what did the shepherd do? He went back up into the hills looking for one sheep. Now, I mean, I'll save most of this story for later. But what an amazing story. The sheep, the one, he had left the flock because he wanted to hang out with the goats. How amazing is that? <laughs> like as a sermon illustration, right? So here's a sheep, and he wanders off because he wants to play with the goats, but the goats, of course, can handle high mountain cliffs. The sheep can't. And so he went and he looked, and... Um, this one sheep had died. He had fallen. And he brought the, the sheep back. So, but he, the point here is what? He went out. He went out after the one because this is what God does. This is what shepherds do. Uh, this is significant. There's a book called The 3D Gospel that says um, the gospel is articulated in different parts of the world in different ways. In the West, often guilt, innocence. In Asia, often shame, honor. In Africa, often fear, power. I'd add a fourth dimension that's very significant. We need to frame the gospel as a movement from alone to companionship. Very important. Why? Because for David, he spent a great deal of time alone. He was alone as a shepherd. He was alone after he was anointed king and then the existing king who was jealous of David tries to kill David, forces him to flee. He becomes a refugee. He's on the run. He's hiding in caves and he's alone. And he's alone later in life when his son steals the throne through a coup. And so here's what David is articulating in Psalm 23. He's saying, hey, you know, I've been alone a lot, but although I'm alone, I'm never alone. That's what he's saying. Uh, for me, this is uh, very valuable. The companionship of Christ is, again, speaking personally, my source of contentment, my source of joy, my source of wisdom, my source of courage. You can take a lot from me, but I know one thing you can never take from me is companionship with Christ. And so when David is musing on this at the very beginning, and he says, the Lord is my shepherd, there's a sense in which he knows this by virtue of the, of the, of the covenant-keeping nature of Yahweh, by virtue of the character of a shepherd, David knows this, he will never be alone. He will never be alone. And this is, a, this is the gospel. This is the good news for all people. This is the good news for people whose families are victimized by shooting. This is the good news for, for, a, for a world where race continues to be a gigantic barrier. It's not that we don't seek to fix these things. 
It's that we need another message too, my friends. And the other message is this. Though we may never fix these things, all of us have access to what? The companionship and care and nurture of a good, strong shepherd. That's where we go with the 23rd Psalm. So what we're going to do now is we're going to begin our practice of meditation together and just spend like a minute or two in silence. And I'm going to invite you to just on your inhaling moment, slow your breath down and close your eyes. And on your inhaling moment, just say to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd. And on your exhaling moment, say thank you. And then I know what will happen to you, because it happens to me. When I say the Lord is my shepherd, I'll begin, my mind will begin to wander, even in a two-minute period. And I'll say, oh, shepherd, oh, I wore wool this morning. That's good. <laughs> and then I'll say, yeah, I got this at Goodwill. I wonder if there's any more. Maybe I'll go there today. Oh, that's right. I have a box of books I need to take to Goodwill. Yeah, I wonder if I should take the scooter or the car. Oh, I haven't, and then pretty soon, do you understand what I'm saying? Of course, it happens to all of us. As soon as you know you're wandering, don't beat yourself up, just come back home and remind yourself of this truth. This is what it means to chew on scripture, to meditate, to chew. The Lord is my shepherd. We're gonna take a minute of silence and a minute with a little bit of instrumental music, and then we'll sing together. Because know this, God's pursuit of you is relentless. Let's pray together in silence.